0: Hello, hello. Oh, hello. Hello. My name's Puno and I'm the founder of I Love Creatives and this is Girl Boss Radio. All right, let's do a little imagination exercise. Actually, some of you might not have to imagine this, which is unfortunate, but here we go. You're working somewhere and you just feel down in the pit of your stomach and you just feel And maybe today is the last day that you're going to feel like this because you've tried everything, but your boss is sexist and your coworkers are really rude to you. Wait a minute. You're (laughs) Am I in the movie Wolf of Wall Street? So now you're ready to go. You're ready to quit. But you're not just ready to quit your job. You're ready to quit this entire industry. You're ready to completely pivot. In fact, you've got to do a complete 180. And unfortunately, you can't just spa day your way out of this one. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, you got to go to the Amazon and you're going to emerge with a whole new mission driven career. So, spoiler alert, that is exactly what happened to our guest today, Lisa Choi Owens. She is the Chief Revenue Officer and Director of Growth for TED. Yeah? Clap, 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 clap. That one, TED Talk. You know what I'm talking about. TED Talk, TED. That TED Talk that you turned on 11 p.m. at night on YouTube and you're like, you know what, I need to change... I need to be inspired." And and you did. You heard this great talk that changed your mind about who knows what, but yeah, that Ted. That Ted exactly. We love Ted. So back to Lisa. Lisa and I are both from immigrant families. I'm half Korean and Lisa is full Korean. And it was really nice to be able to talk to someone else about growing up in an immigrant family that has a very strong work ethic. And at what point is working hard turning into burnout? And at what point is working hard necessary and part of your experience? And what part of it is just shitty? We dove into a lot. We also talked about representation and just feeling like, is this for me? Who am I? But Lisa definitely figured out who she was. She left Wall Street after 18 months and then went straight to work for Tommy Hilfiger. She knew she wanted to do business and figured out the steps she needed to take to make that a reality. And that step for her was applying to Harvard Business School. So I didn't go to Harvard Business School, but I did go to the business school at University of Texas at Austin. And I wanted to have a really frank conversation about MBAs. Should you get one? Should you not? Who should get one? When should you get it? Does an Ivy League school matter, et cetera? All of the questions that nobody really talks about. And what was so great is that Lisa was so candid Whenever I interview a guest that's just got great candor, I just wanna soak up all of their wisdom because they're there to throw down. Anyways, great conversation. I really hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So here we go, let's get into it. Well, Lisa, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. Thank you, happy to be here. Well, so today you are the Chief Revenue Officer, the CRO, and Head of Global Partnerships at TED. But, you know, like a lot of us, we've had a lot of different jobs before we got there. And actually, your first job straight out of college was on Wall Street, which is so different. Uh, What was that like? I mean, this is gonna age me, but working on
1: Wall Street way back then pretty much fit every nightmare story, every bad stereotype that you can imagine. I actually was working on the trading floor, which was just so challenging on so many levels. Like if you were to think about Me Too, everyone in that organization would have been fired. It was just kind of the extreme case that of things that you've seen in the movies effectively, where women were wildly uh, disrespected Uh, It was an incredibly male dominant very very aggressive environment and one that I just to be perfectly honest with you I just wasn't ready for it toughened me up It turned my mouth into like a terrible potty mouth as a result because that was actually the only way that I could kind of have any credibility with folks there I'd have to like throw an f-bomb in order for someone to actually hear my voice So it, it certainly toughened me up. I mean on many levels It was so difficult that like every job that
0: followed was easy, but it was a pretty crazy introduction into the work world. What is an example? Because I mean, I can imagine from the movies that you're coming into this wild room where it's mostly men. So, I mean, I have so many stories from like being
1: invited to strip
0: clubs and
1: people using the squawk boxes to place bets on how much weight a woman who had put on during her maternity leave. Wow. To, you know, just being cursed at on the floor. And, you know, for the most part, particularly when you were young and also at that time where it was really just not evolved, you really just had to sit back and take it. And the only things that you could do was just be busy when everyone was going to the strip joint or, you know, just trying to be avoidant was probably the best thing. I tell everyone I pretty much went in the bathroom and cried every day and then I'd put on my strong face and come right back outside. And I think one of the most interesting things about my experience at J.P. Morgan was it was part of a training program and it was you know, fairly prestigious. And there were lots of things that could have been better about it. And the neophyte employee that I am, I spoke out and eventually my hand was slapped. And it was one of these seminal moments where someone basically took me out for a drink and said, you need to shut your mouth.
0: And
1: I want to say that for a solid 10 years that really impacted me because I was so used to having a voice. You definitely kind of come out of college pretty emboldened with a fair amount of confidence. And, you know, getting a job on Wall Street was something I was pretty proud of. So it was, it was a, a very humbling experience. I wouldn't take it away, but if I had a daughter, I'm not sure that I would push them in that, in that direction, particularly a trading floor, which is pretty distinct and different from other parts of financial institutions.
0: Do you think that it's like that today?
1: They don't have a choice, it can't be like that today. I mean, yeah. people are actually right. now finally being held accountable. That said, women's issues are still issues that need to be worked on. And there is no doubt that more improvements need to be made. But I would imagine it's a massively stark difference. Listen, but when I was in business school, 25% were women. Now, I think it's really closer to par, like 50-50. That's a pretty big change over 20 years. So I see a lot of improvements. But, you know, with discrimination, so much of this can be very quiet and subtle, Hmm. things that cut into people's confidence and their value don't need to be quite as overt as what I experienced on a trading floor, Mm -hmm. but they still exist. And so I think there's still tons of improvement to be made, but I can only imagine it's definitively better now because frankly, they wouldn't be able to handle the lawsuit fees (laughs) associated with all of the things that they could have gotten in trouble for 25, 30 years ago.
0: Yeah. So you were saying, though, that, you know, you always wanted to work on Wall Street and this was a good job for you. Mm -hmm. When did you realize it was time to get out? And in retrospect, would you have left sooner or? Well, I can't say that I wanted
1: to work on Wall Street. Okay, I think one of the things is when you come from a background that you don't have a ton of financial stability, your choice is narrow. I was effectively looking for the job that paid the most. Right. Because I knew I was going to come out of school with debt. And I knew that I didn't have a parachute. I had no family money. I kind of didn't have that financial cushion. So that was the choice I made. Mm -hmm. But like with anything, college does not prepare you for a lot of real world experiences. And this is definitely not something you take a class in. Mm -hmm. But it was the choice that made the most sense given my personal financial circumstances. I actually stayed longer than I wanted to Mm -hmm. because I needed, I did know that at some point jumping too soon, not giving it a chance, all these things would have repercussions with the way that people might view me. Um, Oh, she's not serious. She's a wimp. Mm -hmm. She gave up. And I had some pride in that. And I knew I had to at least kind of complete the, the program. So I ended up staying for 18 months, which, you know, frankly, I knew months in. But 18 months to me is actually also still a pretty short time to make a pretty decisive decision. And frankly, I was thinking forward in my life. And I thought, if I want a family and if I want kids, I have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and basically be just like brutalized all day Mm. um, in a super, super high stress environment. And I thought, this isn't the life I want. So I'm Mm -hmm. actually kind of, in retrospect, proud that I made a decision sooner than later, because frankly, as I got older, Mm -hmm. I stayed in places far longer than I should have. So, you know, I was better and quicker and more decisive back then.
0: Why do you feel like we stay longer? Because I agree, you know, like sometimes I feel like I just don't know what this whole world is about yet. I need some time to see how I can navigate it and, you know, make allies, if you will, in the company. And is there such thing as a too soon or is there such thing as staying too long?
1: Well, I think it's an incredibly personal question. I do think that there is such a thing as too short and too long. Yeah. It's going to be very different depending on the person. Mm. And both of those things I think have more to do with professional ramifications. If you stay too short, you look like a jumper. Right. If you stay too long, you kind of become institutionalized in your thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be a year on the short end and 15 years on the long end. It could be six months and five years. It depends on the person. But mm-hmm. you know, I think part of the reason why we don't change, first of all, change like generically is scary. People don't like it. And I think just the unknown. Like it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. And I think part of the reason why I got more stuck as I got more senior and had more work experience was because I could swap out the company name, and the company address, and my peer group, and my bosses. But effectively, I was like, I'm in a corporate environment. It's effectively the same. Yeah. So I could swap out this uh, extremely rigid boys club type of environment, but I'm probably just going to enter into another one. So, so tell me what the benefit is there, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you become a little bit cynical, I think particularly if you were in more of a corporate environment, which is where I was before I made like the ultimate move to move to TED and move to kind of something that was mission-driven, mm-hmm. knowing that that would probably suit my personality better. Mm. But it hardened me in ways that just kind of made me not like myself. And so, mm. you know, I think for every person, there's just a breaking point. And, you know, I, I just knew it was just too soul-crushing for me to stay.
0: Mm-hmm. You said in an article that uh, you felt a lot of women aren't as primed for professional networking as men are. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious, like, what did you mean by that? And how do you see that changing?
1: Sure. I mean, a lot of it is actually just driven by numbers. So, and the industry that you're in, but any industry that I'd been in before, which was finance, tech, media, was pretty male dominant. And so it's really hard to get confidence when you are the minority in any circumstance whether it's yeah. the color of your skin or your gender mm. and i remember confronting walls of like navy and gray just walls of dudes mm-hmm. and it was really hard i had to talk myself into like just start a conversation get in there i feel lucky because my natural kind of personality type is outgoing and a bit of an extrovert yeah it didn't make it any more comfortable or easy for me to do it. It just allowed me to kind of get the momentum and get in there, where some people may not even make the decision to even attend the event, much less actually ingratiate yourself into a conversation. And so I think a lot of it has been driven by the fact that, A, women haven't been as in power, you know, historically at different levels of seniority inside of a company. And when you are the minority, it is really hard to find your voice and not feel judged. Mm -hmm. It's tough. Mm -hmm. Now, if I go to a woman's conference, I am like in just heaven. I feel unobstructed. I feel absolute confidence and complete comfort knowing that I'm with my tribe and I have conversations openly and my networking is a lot more successful. Mm. Now, if you translate that into what it's like for men, that's what they have gotten to enjoy and improve upon their entire careers. Being around men, being comfortable around men, being comfortable networking around the majority. So they've been able to flex that muscle for a longer period of time and at more senior levels and to better effect and better impact. Mm -hmm. And I also think part of it is the constant balance of being a woman and being too aggressive versus not aggressive enough. Mm -hmm. I always talk about it, that we live our lives on the knife's edge, right? So if Mm -hmm. I'm too quiet, I'm sweet, and I have really no impact. If I'm too aggressive, ugh, bitch, (laughs) right? It's just so easy that people love to label. And I have very much struggled with where on that tightrope, I land and trust me, I've gone one way or the other, and it's been uncomfortable all the way through.
0: I think it's been interesting for myself because, you know, when I was in high school, even in college, I was definitely hanging out with the guys a bunch. Mm -hmm. But then later, now in my life, I am surrounded by women, you know, founders, uh, freelancers. Like, and what I've noticed is there's a shift in my relationships. Like, my professional networking in a way is based off of vulnerability of being able to talk about my problems and things that I don't know. And then it's also based off of me giving. So like I give a lot, I'm very generous. I'm like, Hey, how can I help Mm -hmm. you? Which I think is a different way of networking. And I feel like that's one of the big differences for Mm -hmm. me is, is just the approach networking and why it's so much easier for me to network with women or just like why naturally i'm surrounded by way more Mm -hmm. women because of my approach (laughs) well i mean you and
1: i are cut from the same cloth because that vulnerability i think is first of all just it's probably blasphemy and people would be pissed but it's like is it nature i don't know do women tend to have you know more of a penchant for being vulnerable i don't know but it's really funny i had my uh monthly kind of meeting yesterday and I always have closing remarks at the end that I've just, you know, just a little bit of wisdom if I have anything to share. And one of them was about like being your true authentic self. And if you show up as your authentic self, yeah. not only will you earn trust, you'll gain trust. You'll be better at listening. People will uh, want to help you. You'll form a tighter relationship. You'll want to help them. And it's just this lovely virtuous cycle. Yeah. And this is where I think women have an advantage. If you always put up a wall and you are always concerned about having to manage Manage a relationship versus allowing it to kind of be free and open and honest. Yeah Not only does it expend more energy you are naturally not creating a relationship based on trust. Yeah, and without trust Without having a a feeling of safety with someone How close will you be how much will you know them? How much will you try to help them? How much will they try to help you if they don't feel safe around you? And I think safety comes with being vulnerable and being more authentic. So like you, I mean the gigantic majority of my network, it's almost entirely women because those are the kinds of conversations I'm able to have.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I hate
1: to put this into such like a gender-based bucket, yeah. but I don't know that that level of sharing and vulnerability comes as naturally in our society for men. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that it's their fault. They also actually suffer mm-hmm. because they're not really allowed to. In the way that we're judged for being too tough, sometimes they're judged for being too soft. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I could I could not agree more. And I think part of the reason why you're also able to network with success and impact with women is because there are now finally more women with power. Yeah. More women with leverage, more women with more powerful networks. And that network effect is real. And it does, in fact, create a virtuous cycle. Yeah. So I'm I'm I am in your tribe.
0: (laughs) Hell yeah. Let's go conference. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, girl bosses, are there any of you out there that are on the hunt for the next level up in your career? I got some friends who might be interested in that. Tell me about your friends. Do they have their resumes typed? Yeah. Is their Zoom interview outfits ready to go? Got business on the top, athleisure on the bottom kind of thing?
1: it might be athleisure on top and bottom, but we can
0: fix that. We can fix it. Okay, well, once they got those, all they need now is that new job. Yeah, that's what they want. So, I don't know if your friends know this, but we have a girl boss job board. Oh my God. I didn't know this. You didn't? That's your role. <laughs> I, know. I know. What's, what's <laughs> happening? Dropping the ball here, guys. Pick it up. So, so, okay, sorry. Hold on. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of really cool jobs on there. I just saw a job for um, Disney art director. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Youth to the people, social media Ooh, person. I love youth to the people so good right the kombucha toner oh my mm. god for any of you other hr folks that are hiring our listeners make fantastic employees they're here they're trying to educate themselves they're trying to level up mm-hmm. what else could you want just some athleisure on the top as an option oh my <laughs> damn okay just kidding well check it out at jobs.girlboss.com oh i'm telling all my friends that so when you went to Tommy Hill figure though, mm-hmm. you have this now network of people that you're surrounded by, but you ended up deciding to go back to school to yeah. Harvard Business School to pursue an MBA. And I guess like I'm always so curious, like, why do people decide to get MBAs? What was your reason?
1: <sighs> to be totally honest with you, it was like that's what everyone was doing. Sure. I don't know what I was doing when I applied. First of all, like the beauty of the confidence that you have when you're younger, just the whole ignorance is bliss is legit. And then if you're around, surrounded by a peer group that do go to business school, you tend to follow. But I also thought kind of coming from the immigrant background that I had, I just felt like this might be a legitimizer mm-hmm. because I've always there's I think anyone who is in an underrepresented population always has a little bit of insecurity by being different and being part of the minority. And so any of these things, labels, titles, parchment paper, um, certificates, etc that make you feel more validated by culture, you'll do it. Yeah, It turned out to be one of the most seminal uh, experiences of my life. And I've only really recently understood the value of getting an MBA, I would say in the last five to 10 years. Why is that? Because here's what I think, and in particular for Harvard Business School, they teach you when you get there that like you are the chosen few and they give you all of this, it's like unsettling level of confidence. You are going to lead. You get out and you're 28 years old. I think I applied when I was 24. I got in when I was 25. I left when I was 27. When you're 27, what the hell do you know? Like I literally wrote my essay based on two years of like paltry work experience. So when you get out, you're junior but you are filled with over exuberant confidence. And so for the first 10 years, you're frustrated as shit. You're like, wait, I can do better. I'm smarter, I should be better. And I think that that contributes to some of the negative feelings about people who have have their MBA. What I found though, when you get more senior and what they're really preparing you for, is to see the forest through the trees. Mm. So going to business school, at the end of two years, you're forced to do, I think, something close to 2,000 case studies. And the few things that are similar across all these case studies is there's either too much or too little information. And the number of cases they give you every day is just too much for you to do all of them well. And that's life. You never have enough information. You never have enough time. You never have enough resources. But you have to make decisions that are Mm -hmm. well-informed and you have to hone this skill of having a nose for knowing what direction you need to go with some level of confidence. And so what I realize now is my ability to quickly distill a situation and make a determination as to what to do and how to create a structure around it. It is the most valuable gift that I have. It's not that I'm good at financial modeling. I'm not really good at process engineering. Like I don't have a particular functional skill, but what I do know that I have is this purview, the ability to see the forest through the cheese really, really quickly, mm-hmm. to get to an answer fast, and to do it with some level of confidence because I have an understanding of how to analyze imperfect information in not enough time. Mm-hmm. And that is a skill that's much better served when you're senior than when you're kind of middling.
0: That's so interesting because you're you're essentially in hundreds of simulations, yeah, and you're building this skill of knowing how much information is not enough and how much information is too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that skill alone is is so hard. Like you don't, you cannot do that unless you have actual experience or simulations or case studies of knowing all those things. That's a really interesting way of thinking about MBAs. What advice would you give to someone who's contemplating an MBA? (sighs) So this is
1: kind of the harsh reality of getting an MBA. And this is like just Lisa Choi Owens' perspective. And everyone should choose their path based on what they want to do. But the truth of the matter is, I do think that waiting too long to get your MBA may not be the right thing to do. Because unfortunately, it's the great equalizer. So it becomes, what year did you graduate? So if I came in and I had three years of experience and I'm class of 99, somebody can have 10 years of experience, but they're class of 99 right along with me. And since people love to make shortcuts, their natural inclination is to be like, oh, you're class of 99, just like her, except I have three years of experience, this person has 10 years of experience. So I do think at some point there are diminishing returns the longer that you wait, if you want to really truly like feel some sense of ROI from going to business school. Yeah. I also think, and this is going to be probably somewhat controversial, I do think that Going for the best possible school that you can go to is really critically important. Mm. And the only reason that I say these things is not because I think that it's great. Let's be judged by like what label I'm wearing or what car I drive or what college I went to. What you have to do is recognize that human nature says my body has biologically come to this place by learning how to save as much energy as possible, not expend more energy than is necessary. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why there are stereotypes, part of the reason that people love having labels, brands. You are allowed to make a leap of faith. You have uh, a shortcut. So this is just part of human nature. And this is part of the reason why I think that sometimes the, the caliber of the school can have a really big impact if that is something that's available to you, if you have the capacity to access it. Mm-hmm. All that said, that's only if there's, you have a certain objective. Yeah. There are people, though, that legitimately know they don't have a well-rounded business experience. And the word that you used just recently, which I'd never thought of before, case studies are simulations. Yeah. And when you're forced into doing, let's see, 3, 9, 11, 13 simulations a week, and, and this, I'm telling you, you are bludgeoned with work. It is. It, it, I'm, I was personally overwhelmed. Like, listen, I was public schooled all the way through until Harvard Business School, so I may not have been as ready as other people. But that those simulations mimicked ten years of work experience. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I really sometimes have a hard time giving this type of advice, and it will completely depend on the person that I'm speaking to. Yeah. But I, I do think time matters. I do think you know the school that you decide to go to. But then you, what you really have to confront is like, why are you going? Mm-hmm. That will help determine those answers for you. And I realize also, like, saying Harvard Business School is super loaded and people are like, ugh, I can already tell I don't like you. Like, I know that there's, like, a lot that's not good about it. And so it's clearly just, like, a teeny tiny portion of what's available to people. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of really high caliber quality educations that you can get. So like I said, it's a very personal decision. But sometimes I will give slightly harsher advice to people if they're mid career or they're choosing between this school and that yeah um you're 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 going to get an honest answer from me <laughs> so
0: i like it i like yeah. it well so okay then you were at harvard and this is yep. 1999 destiny's child bills 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 <laughs> <laughs> big time internet is blowing up and you decided to go into tech after mm-hmm. graduation And I'm just gonna like go straight into it. You ended up going through the dot-com burst in 2000 and happened to be kind of like in the eye of the storm, if you will, because you were in an IPO. So it's like you saw the fruits of Mm -hmm. the bubble and then you saw the burst as well, which is crazy. What was that like?
1: Going through an IPO is one of like the few things that like you kind of wish everyone could go through because the energy and the excitement and the momentum behind it is incredible. So I wouldn't trade it for the world. The fact that it was so short-lived. It was like, okay, December, IPO, March, bubble burst, summer (laughs) of that year, you know, delisted from NASDAQ. You're like, shit, uh, that's a cycle. Yeah. The pandemic is for many people their first crisis moment yeah we've had so many of them there was like a minor telecom burst i was part of that one too Mm. then there was the housing crisis you know we had obviously just 2008 and the great great recession whatever it is you want to call it 9 11 was another kind of major shock to the system and the pandemic is one they all look different but they're massive kind of external shocks to the system that hurt lots of industry and lots of people Mm. and what you learn from all of these situations is how to rise from the ashes, how to be nimble, how to to kind of have some grit. Because the only thing that I know for certain is that this will not be the last one. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to ready my team to say, and listen, everyone's really relatively young. I'm like, this may be your first shock. For a couple of us on the team, it's like my fifth one. So is it as shocking? No. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm able to bear down and manage it a little bit better because I have more perspective. Yeah. So. If you can look at it, if you're particularly going through this one, and this one is like epic, right? COVID is, is, an, is an epic shock to the system. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it on a continuum, you're going to realize this is one of many. What can I learn from this? There's something to learn from every single one of these. And I honestly think that resilience and mm-hmm. grit and the ability to say, oh my god, I'm never going to get out of this. But then you end up getting out of it just gives you just a little bit more confidence with every one of these things. So mm-hmm. I think it's just important to try to, to imagine your life on a really long continuum, your job and your career on a very long continuum, and that this is one blip. And it may be two years or three years, right? And there are certainly circumstances where some of these financial crises were really long lasting, but we get out of it. Yeah. I definitely felt far more emotionally and psychologically prepared to manage through this one as a result of all the other ones I've gone through.
0: I love that you made a relationship between experience and confidence Mm because I've always thought of that. Maybe I used to work in gaming and in Mm -hmm. gaming, there's this concept called XP, which is like experience points. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I always felt like I've had these moments, these experiences all throughout my life that kind of built and manifested the confidence level that I have at this point. Mm-hmm. When I was like an only child, my dad forgot to like leave money or have food in the refrigerator. It sounds like he's an asshole, but he's, no. <laughs> he's just <laughs> kind of forgetful. Um, yeah. But but I'd have to like figure out how to make a sandwich by myself. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. wow, that wasn't that bad. And. <laughs> But it was like all exactly. these little things that help build your confidence, um, yeah. which is such an understated skill it is. that people don't realize they need for everything, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think if you can have experiences as young as what you have, I had it. I mean, my sister and I were Lashkey kids for sure. My parents had to work um, yeah. and we made tater tots and walked to Burger King and scraped up dimes to go pay for it and just figured out how to manage, Yeah, there were lots of moments of grittiness that contributed to the ability to be more resilient as we got older. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I struggle with with my own kids is that you know they're, they're growing up in a very different circumstance. And they're great kids. They're great kids. But in terms of like legit hard times, not so much. And that's yeah. exactly by design, right? Like I, I went to school and I worked hard explicitly to give them a better life than I had. And right. I had a good life. But um, there's something to be said about these moments that force you mm-hmm. to um, be smarter and clever and work your way through something. I don't know that our society, particularly for people who have privilege, we've, we give enough of those. And it's very much on a family by family basis in terms of responsibility. So it's my job not to coddle. But it's harder to do because now I have to actively do that. Whereas my parents, they didn't have a choice. And so therefore, we didn't have a choice. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that's easier. Not having a choice is sometimes easier, right? So I don't regret anything. I, 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 I like that I had kind of a slightly unorthodox childhood.
0: I mean, you've mentioned your parents quite a few times already and um, and that they were immigrants. Um, mm-hmm. I believe they didn't come here with a college education and only had $800, which That's is right. mind-blowing. Where did your parents immigrate from? Um, so they came from Korea. Oh, I'm half Korean. Yes. Oh, you are half Korean. I wasn't sure. That's awesome. Half half Filipino. Cora. Half Filipino.
1: Okay. Okay. Oh, cool. Awesome. I knew we had something special going on here. Uh.
0: (laughs) I was like, that's where she gets her grit. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly. We're we're a spunky bunch, you know, us Korean ladies in particular. uh, Yeah.
0: It's it's like it's it happens when you live on a peninsula. You just have to have a lot of grit. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of crazy. Like, I don't
1: know a lot of specifics about my parents. It's a bummer. Like, I'm really kind of actively thinking about how I want to start to document that because what they don't realize is like, what you did, I would never be able to do. Yeah, Leave a country without language, without money, without connections of any sort and just plop down in a brand new society. The courage, there's definitively no way that me at their age could have made that type of risky decision and so i'm always blown away by it you know my parents both lost their parents when they were young they came from nothing and yet they were able to figure out a life for my sister and I. we both have mbas you know we both are living wonderful lives i'm seeing them now for the first time after 18 months it was like the happiest day of my life um, from covid and i kind of i would say that maybe i kind of used to resent being an immigrant i don't know if you felt this way i always wanted to be white Mm. Um, Now I'm like so pumped that I have all of this kind of interestingness in my background. Um, I think it made me who I am. It's what made me successful. Yeah. Doesn't mean that this is the only path to be successful, but it definitely contributed to my story, which ended up being a really good story.
0: You mentioned that um, like figuring out your Asian American identity, it's. It's so interesting because I think even today I'm still figuring out how Asian am I? Like I yeah. I feel very American. Like as an example, the other day because it's um Asian American, you know, month and um or AAPI month and mm-hmm. I uh, and someone asked me they're like, "Hey, can you send me photos of yourself in a uh, hanbok?" And I was like, my mom was very americanized like i think i have one photo of oh, me yeah. but like uh-huh. otherwise i'm in a garfield pajama sweat suit and <laughs> i live in a track home in houston like i'm yeah. not i'm so americanized and i felt so much shame for not being asian enough i guess yeah mm-hmm. So I I don't know. I mean, my parents like immigrated here when they were in like 1970s around there, but they were very young. Like my dad was 17 or 16. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's young. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I don't know, I guess like you mentioned it a little bit, but how are you feeling? How are your kids feeling? So, God, this is such an interesting like layered
1: conversations. So, I know <laughs> it was it was one of those things where I felt a lot of my life I was kind of in between. I was like a tweener. I was like not fully Asian and not fully white. So, hmm. I'll give you a couple examples. I remember we lived in Carthage, Missouri, which is just white. Yeah. There's a newspaper article like, "Oh my god, the Orientals are in town." And there's a picture of us and it was like a, a news event that Oriental family had come into the community and we owned the Carthagin motel. Wow. And I was with friends. Everybody was white. And I remember walking by a storefront and I saw my reflection. And I was like, Oh, I'm not white because all I saw reflected back at me were white people. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of the beginning of like, wait a minute, I'm different. And when you're young, you don't want to be different.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: When you're older, you actually love being different. But back then, oof, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And, um, You know, the other thing in terms of difficulty, you talked about track homes. You know, I was watching Shits Creek, one of the (laughs) 5,000 shows that I watched online during the pandemic. And I watched it and I loved it so much I watched it again. And then I texted my sister and I was like, oh, my God, Sandy, we lived in a motel. It didn't even occur to me that I had this memory until the second time I was watching the series. And I thought, I wonder what this means. Did I bury that? Because at the moment, I have nothing but positive memories. We had a swimming pool. You know, like, it was just, it was, it was, there were people coming and going. It was really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I buried that. And I literally only recently dug up pictures of when our family lived in a motel. Wow. And so I think those were all moments of conflict. And that was when I was younger. Then I went to Berkeley, which is pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember I dated a Swedish guy. And then everyone was like, you're a traitor. (gasps) And I was part of a sorority. It was mostly white and all the Asian community was just shunning me. I was just basically a full sellout. And then on the same token, I always was like, but I'm not blonde, I don't look white. And Western beauty has always been the standard and it always was like, oh, I wish I looked more white. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I had longer eyelashes and bigger eyes and you know, all this kind of stuff. So I struggled with that i definitely gotten more confidence over time. I still have like all kinds of deep insecurities. But the way that it's manifesting now with all this violence against Asians is fascinating because my husband yeah. is Caucasian, so my kids are mm. half. And they actually look probably more white than they do Asian. Mm. So I've been having to give them advice what to do when you're on the subway, what to do if somebody kind of comes up to you and becomes aggressive, any moment that might kind of become a point of conflict and I've given them all this advice and they're like mommy don't worry about it we look white we don't have to worry about it Mm. and I was actually I felt badly about that because I wanted them to be proud of being half Asian Mm -hmm. and at that moment it was a blessing not to be (sighs) but it made me a tiny bit sad yeah kind of like you were talking about like a little bit of shame you're like why am I not more this way why am I not more proud of it Because I'm super proud of it now. But this is a really, really difficult time. This is really hard. I'm kind of stunned by it. But it also just grows my empathy for the African-American community. um, You know, for the Muslim community. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all bad. But it just gives me more empathy for these other groups that are systematically uh, discriminated against.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's been interesting, too, with girl boss like Mm -hmm. the culture of and the shame also of working too hard and it's so frustrating for me because i have immigrant parents i i know my immigrant grandparents i know how hard they've worked i know that i don't have student loan debt because of that i know Mm -hmm. that like all of those opportunities that i've had is because of working too hard in a way
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and and you've done that as well i mean you you've worked your ass off in wall street from harvard to Mm -hmm. to where you are now so i guess like what's your perspective on working hard
1: you know i think this is um both an immigrant and a female question yeah when you have a family in particular it becomes even more pronounced how hard you work and how little domestic work is valued. But you're supposed to put on a strong face. I'm only going to take these three months off maternally. I'm going to come right back. If you need me, you can email me. I'm just going to go pump for a minute, but I'll be right back. And to come home and to do all the things that you should do and love to do for your kids just elongates the day when you have really no reprieve at work. Nobody cares. That you were out. I mean, they really don't. Nobody cares mm. if you have childcare at home. Like this is one of like the, the the kind of terrible misjustices of our injustices of our culture, particularly in the United States. But I think working hard is like, extra loaded when you become a mom mm. because women tend to continue to bear the the brunt, the majority of the workload in a standard marital setting. So I'm not talking about people are divorced or separated or what what have you. And then if you layer on top of that, this idea that working hard. Is the way forward. Like that was our way forward. It was not calling my uncle that's the CEO of something. It wasn't like my parents donating to this school. It was just like work hard and you're gonna get someplace. And for many many immigrants, it proves itself out. So the problem mm-hmm. becomes you're like, well, that's the only way then. That's it. I know it works for sure. Working hard works. So I'm just gonna keep doing it. Mm-hmm. But you know, over time. You know, you have to start to reflect on quality of life and time that you want to spend doing things that give you more joy or spending more time with your family, and it's really, really hard to let go. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I'm really fantastic at balance. COVID forced it. I was telling people that, like, COVID made me realize how much I hid behind busy.
0: Mm.
1: So I also think that working hard, unfortunately, can be an escape mechanism, a a way for you to be avoidant of other things that need to be important in your life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, you know, I think COVID, if there's any upside, if there's any, anything positive to take from it, maybe it did teach people the, I don't know, the benefit of quiet, Mm -hmm. not being busy, slowing down. It really forced our hand. And now I do think that people are coming to grips with a lot of life-changing decisions are being made during this period because we had the time to self-reflect. Mm -hmm. And um, working super hard for the sake of working hard, I think is a bygone era after
0: this pandemic. This episode is brought to you by Gusto. Okay, this is legit. I am such a fan of Gusto. I was really excited when they wanted to sponsor this episode because I love Gusto. (laughs) truly. So you might be like, okay, okay. So what is it? What is Gusto? So Gusto is an easy online payroll and benefit service built for me, built for modern small businesses. It's a one-stop shop. It's the place where I pay. It's where I do payroll. It's where we do benefits. It's where I can bring on contractors, but there's all these other things that I didn't know I needed like how to stay compliant how to be compliant in your specific state and then like all of these other HR questions what I love about Gusto is that not only is their customer support super awesome but the way that the UI is set up it's like a checklist it's like this small business checklist and you just go in there and you're like okay what do I need to press and you kind of get this like small business crash course as you grow which is amazing because it's like this is the last thing that i want to think about truly and it helps with everything i mean it helps with time tracking with health insurance 401ks onboarding commuter benefits offer letters like it's really no surprise that 94% of their customers are likely to recommend Gusto. Like, listen, listen to me, listen to me. I am a Gusto customer and I'm like, thank you. So here's the best part. Because you're a listener, you get three months totally free, three months. That is enough payrolls for you to be like, oh wait, I haven't thought about payrolls in three months. Exactly. So, all you have to do is go to gusto.com backslash girlboss. That's gusto.com backslash girlboss. And I am telling you, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. There's no other platform that does this as well as gusto does. Here's a fact even if gusto didn't sponsor this episode, I would have told you about it anyways, somehow. I would have slipped it in one of these episodes. Anyways, I'm a fan, gusto. Thanks so much. <laughs> Damn, she's obsessed. I know, shut up. I do, I love Gusto. Well, so you found your way then to TED. And I guess- I did. How did you know that it had all of those components that you have always been looking for, but you didn't know that you were looking for? (laughs) So part of it was like,
1: it was meant to be, So when I left my my last corporate job, I was totally fried and emotionally spent. And so I knew that I had to have some kind of experience to to just hit the reset button. But it wasn't like, oh, let me just go to a spa and get a bunch of massages. Like I just knew it wasn't gonna be one of those things. And so soul searching and networking, I'm also like big into like leadership retreats. So I have like a fairly large network of people who have alternative, you know, populations that I could tap. And so I ended up going deep into the Amazon jungle for two weeks with a group called the Pachamama Alliance, it's these prolific philanthropists, and they were generous enough to let me go on their annual founder's trip. Mm. And I, um, I like doing group work. You know, um, my husband thinks it's weird, but I love meeting brand new people. I'm like good with strangers. So I went down there and there were like 12 people, and then me, and I was just like the 13th wheel, and um, completely disconnected, 100% connected to nature, bathing, shaving my legs in the Amazon jungle, Meeting with tribes that took 10 years to break down barriers for them to allow us to come in. Having a goddaughter that I named, you know, from one of the tribes that we met down there. It was one of these like really super transformative experiences, but it was also to learn about saving the planet. Um, these were like the sacred headwaters of the Amazon that were in Ecuador. But the point is, is, I met all these brand new people. And so then as you become close with these people doing something so profound together, they're just asking, like, what'd you do? And what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I'm only enjoying this moment right now because it's just so it's like so mind-blowing. But then yeah. somebody said to me, "You should work at Ted." And this is this is what happens when you stay somewhere too long or you only stay with one set of friends or one industry is you don't see what's possible. Ted was so far outside of my line of sight. It didn't even make it into the to the graph. I didn't even see it. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I was like, "Wow. I mean, I guess so. Like at its core, it's a nonprofit, but it does really function as a media company. And I had been in media, and I'd done online video, and I had built websites, and, and I'd done all this stuff in digital media. And that's the main vehicle by which people experience TED. So mm-hmm. I was like, that's kind of cool. Let me think about it. And then weeks later, I find out that the goddaughter of the founder of Pachamama works in a headhunting firm a recruiting firm, and then you know, just by exposing myself to other people, two people separately, ended up saying like, I heard about this opportunity at TED. One was through Pachamama. So I made myself vulnerable. I had this really incredible personal experience. The other one was I was asking for networking help and I was just being brutally honest about it. I said, I think I want purpose in my life. Mm. They both heard me and they both forwarded something to me. So it felt very much like this is meant to be. And so that was the start of my career there. And part of why I knew that this was kind of the place for me was because I felt like it was the first place I could breathe and like let down my hair and actually behave the way that I'm used to behaving. Like, I'm pretty casual. I probably curse too much. I don't know how much you're going to have to bleep out of this, so I apologize in advance. (laughs) But, um, you know, I'm just like a straight talker. I don't like to be overly formal, and I, I just like to have that type of conversation. But I'm also curious. And so I got there, and not only was I kind of allowed to really kind of mostly be who I wanted to be in a professional setting, I noticed that, like, freaking everything became interesting to me. And I was like, the fact that my world is expanding this much and I'm enjoying it so much, and all I want to do is learn about more things to learn more about the things that I just learned about. It's like, how many times do you have this opportunity in life? Mm. And how many times do you get to learn that, like, if you keep learning, it's like joyous? And so, you know, for so many reasons, and also the, the love and affection that we have from people who watch TED and how much it changes their lives. It's an intangible. It's really hard to to place a value on it, but it just feels good.
0: Like you said, it's not a traditional nonprofit, but yet your role is, how it can be profitable because you're the chief revenue officer. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's dissonant.
1: It's dissonant. People are like, wait, revenue, nonprofit. Like, wait, is that a job? Can you have that job inside of a nonprofit? (laughs) And I'm like, I know, I know. It's kind of confusing. But if you just think about anything, it is a business. Like the basic thesis is that you need to make more than you spend. And some companies, the delta is what defines them. And in some companies, Mm. just having a delta is good enough, right? And Mm. so in a nonprofit, we're not here to line our pockets or to pay dividends to shareholders. We just have to make sure we're fiscally responsible to, to know that we have the capacity to grow and to fund and to have enough to invest in any kind of growth initiatives that the mission kind of begs for. And so my job is to figure out the best of what Ted has to offer and to provide that kind of as a service to companies.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, when I saw that you were Chief Revenue Officer and Head of Partnerships, I was just like, yeah, I mean, that's the business. Like, it is Mm -hmm. a partnership business. And these days, we don't want, us as listeners, us as viewers, don't want to be necessarily sold in the traditional way, but at the same time, the way it is integrated is so important and mm-hmm. who you're doing it with and I've I've had like little experiences with it as an influencer and as host mm-hmm. too and feeling like sometimes you know I'll see a brand and I'll be like no like yeah. no I would never yeah. that's like snake oil like yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that yeah um so I really do have to do my research yeah How do you ensure that you're you are doing your research and that Mm -hmm. you're doing the due diligence that is needed for Ted?
1: Yeah. I mean, so much of it, I think, is driven by like being an astute listener and trying to read through the business jargon to get a sense of what is it you're trying to accomplish. If it's too marketing, it's too like bottom of the funnel sales conversion. I'm always happy to say, listen. That is your business. There's nothing wrong with that. We're just not the best platform for you. But ultimately, Mm. and this becomes the most difficult pill for partners to swallow. When they do, I'm like really impressed by them. The final word comes from Ted. The final curatorial word, the content that's created, um, all those types of things that touch the core of our mission and the actual content itself and how Mm. we engage is ultimately our decision. We collaborate. You know, I always tell people we're not there to like poke them in the eye and, you know, force them to have difficult conversations that they're not ready to. But at the end of the day, even contractually, we, we let everybody know that the reason that I say no is the reason that you are here. Mm-hmm. The reason I say no is the reason why you respect us. And that's why you're here to talk to us. So if you have that much trust in us, then you have to trust us. And that final word is what gives us the control and the confidence that we can do this well. Because mm-hmm. the people that say no vehemently will not make good partners. And it's our
0: job to read that. I feel like partnerships has just become this role that has just evolved and is very prevalent these days and is actually a role that many people want because Mm -hmm. it just, just the, you know, the vibe of it. You get to Mm -hmm. talk to all these cool brands, you get to do new projects all the time. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can tell already how perfect you are as, a head of partnerships, you know, person because you're very confident about the leverage and the the talent um, that TED has, and you're mm-hmm. protective of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like lenient enough to be like, I can see how we could work together. Let me like brainstorm something. You've probably hired a ton of people in partnerships. What do you look for, or what do you think someone needs in order to be successful at this role?
1: I mean. Probably first and foremost, they really have to have a strong belief in TED and a real love for what it is that we do. Because when you do, God, it's easier to have these conversations. I can say with absolute honesty and complete authenticity that I know that we have value to bring and that being uncompromising is one of the very you know best reasons that you want to work with us. And mm-hmm. most people accept that as authentic because I sincerely mean it. So, people who come here probably do have to just understand that this is not a transaction and that mm-hmm. revenue will not always come first, which is very illogical for people coming from for profit. So, it's a pretty big shift. So, I think that's really important. I think that being empathetic, you know, having come from for profit for 25 years and then coming here, you realize, like, oh, I can't get mad that you're pushing on me right now, Ted, while we demand all of this control. Because I also know that you have a lot of pressure on your side. And I've been on your side. And I've had to present to boards. And I have had to you know, manage my own P&L. And, and I have had to answer to those things. And so I have a lot of empathy for it because I've had my own personal experiences with it. So if you have a business experience beforehand and you have a basic understanding of how business works, you're naturally going to have better problem solving skills when trying to find that nice Middle ground to work mm-hmm. in since we are a nonprofit and we are by nature very different. You have to have intellectual curiosity because the things that we talk about, I mean, they run the gamut. You have to be naturally interested in the world. You have to naturally be interested in things that are outside of your purview so that you can have these intellectual conversations because those intellectual conversations are what get people excited about working with us. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we do things that are all fairly standard fair, but what I think you need to do is be a a firm believer in educating people and caring about the mission because what really drives the most successful partnerships are the ones where you have the capacity to inspire. So that means that you you yourself are inspired by ideas, you yourself are inspired by the mission of TED and you believe it firmly and that businesses have like a legitimate role and probably the biggest role closest to the largest resources to actually make significant and real change in the world. And so that's what drives us. And so if you can understand all of those elements, you'll do well in this.
0: Mm. And you're also um, on TED's Diversity Council. What is that role like and how has that affected change in TED?
1: Well, I give a ton of credit to our head of HR, Rachel Morris, for creating a completely different consciousness about what diversity means diversity and inclusion are two very separate words. And I talk a lot about the fact that diversity is the easier one to uh, adopt because it's typically measured by some number that has very little meaning. The percentage of people that are hired, the number of people that sit on the executive committee, um, you know, board representation, etc. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are inclusive. And the way that I've learned what inclusion means is to be allowed to show up With the gifts that you are given naturally depending on what your circumstances are whether you're lgbtq whether you are of a different culture or religion or race or socioeconomic background and that you are able to have a voice at the table and feel accepted and not just feel accepted that's why I hate like how to- like tolerance feels like, oh, I'm barely going to put up with it. Inclusion is not about tolerance. Inclusion is about like embracing it, being like, oh, my god, that's so valuable. If I didn't have that point of view, we would be less successful. Mm-hmm. And so inclusion is creating a space for people to show up with what they have to offer and having that be embraced fully and in an environment that makes that person feel comfortable. And mm-hmm. I don't believe that that's what people focus on, because that's the harder thing to do. The easier thing to do is get the numbers up, get one more female board member, and then you finally have a number that's in the double digits. Do you know what I mean? Like those are gameable. They're critically important, right? You can't have inclusion without diversity, but you can have diversity without inclusion. And that's where that's a failed state to me. Mm -hmm. So if you don't link them together, I I don't know how much progress you're gonna make. So the other thing that I've learned particularly through her and through some of the tools that she's given us are that while there's clearly systems change that has to happen with regard to equity and inclusion at a corporate level, at a policy level, a lot of it has to do with your own self-reflection. Where is your own personal bias? Mm. Recognizing that you are part of the problem everybody has it you kind of want to be like it's the only them it's the, the, everyone over there not me i'm yeah. woke right and so mm-hmm. the tools that she's given us to be able to self-reflect and like kind of have a hard look in the mirror were the most gratifying and the place where i felt the most growth because i realized oh shit, this is not just a corporate policy issue or something that has to pass through congress it's like at an individual level you have to take some personal responsibility for how you show up how embracing are you of someone else's culture? How legitimately curious are you? How do you live your life with those tenants? Mm-hmm. Or do you just talk, talk the talk? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the other great thing that we learned is like there's internal stuff and there's external stuff. So it's a balance, right? You can't solve everything with a policy, but you can't solve it all at an individual level. Like with anything, you know, it's the boring answer that says it's somewhere in the middle. It's kind of both. And so Mm -hmm. we're really trying to attack it as authentically as possible and have difficult conversations. Uh, We even have a podcast (laughs) about people having difficult conversations with uh, Dylan Marin. And that's a space that I feel like we're afforded. And it's a little bit easier for us to do that as a nonprofit. But um, it's been like a real eye-opening experience, both as someone who has bias and someone who has uh, been discriminated against myself.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it, you know, Ted already has so many amazing talks and I was reading that Ted is now kind of, you know, trying to find, I guess, like a shift from inspiration to more education that drives action. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm curious, like, what is the difference and have you already had a talk that drove action and that's what revealed it to, to the organization? Or how did that come about? we've evolved our
1: thinking on this because, you know, if you don't change, you die. So, and the world has changed so quickly that, um, you know, where we started was like ideas. And as you can imagine, it's just endless. Yeah. Everyone's like, Oh, do you guys run out of ideas? I was like, is that really a good question? Like, No, (laughs) of course we don't run about, you you don't run out of ideas, but there is a moment where if you logic yourself around it, you're like, well, how can I enable action on every idea that's ever been, shared to the world. It almost seems too big an issue, right? So we shied away from that and wanted to be exceptional at what we did, which was unearthing and figuring out a format that was incredibly digestible and impactful for people and have those ideas spread as, as widely as possible. But then what ended up happening is, as the world changed um, and time frames are tightening, global warming, like we're all gonna like either burn to death or drown in some period of time. Like there are things that are legitimately at a boiling point that have forced us to think sometimes about leaning a little bit more into action. So Climate Countdown, which is um, a climate-specific event. We had a huge YouTube experience last year because of COVID. We're going to have a physical event in Edinburgh, Scotland in uh, this fall, explicitly bringing together every stakeholder to figure out how to reduce carbon emissions and speed up that process. It's very unlike us to focus on a particular topic,
0: but it was a moment
1: where we thought we should lean in because the time sensitivity around this is real. Now, do we know that we're going to do this all the time and choose one new topic every year? We don't know because what we want to react to is where the world is going. This Mm -hmm. happened to be one where we felt that that was of the utmost importance and was the most urgent thing, and we rallied around it. And so we're going to learn from this. Like, where can we lean into action? in a way that our organization is uniquely positioned to do. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think the way to think about like impact, while it's critically important, it's almost the only thing that matters. You know what we're realizing today? Being able to change your mind, mm. being able to have more flexibility in your thinking, being less polarized in the way that you think, understanding what the other side looks like regardless of the topic, that is also critically important and more important than it's ever been. There are real yeah. tangible negative side effects of not being able to do that. And so the fact that we may drive physical change, we may drive funding for a particular, you know, situation or, or cause, I think just the very act of getting people to think more broadly and more critically mm-hmm. and to have more natural curiosity about something, both sides of it, or the kind of full 360 view of a particular issue is in and of itself invaluable and missing mm. in our culture today like it has been depleted and we need to help build that back up
0: yeah i mean I, that is kind of one of our missions here at girlboss too is just to allow people the space and to hear other people redefining what success is mm. because it's been a bit narrow in the past few years so I'm curious, I would love to hear how you have redefined success, um, whether it's from, been from your childhood or during your career or through motherhood or you know, at TED, how have you redefined success? Well, um,
1: I'm still a slave to you know, certain traditional metrics of success and climbing up the ladder and making more money and those types of things, but they have definitely kind of subdued over time. Right now, the definition of success for me is being able to show up exactly as I am, to be valued for what it is that I uniquely contribute and to just feel comfortable and to feel some sense of joy of coming to work every day. I like being with people, contributing to positive energy and to really feel like I'm bringing my true authentic self. There's nothing more rewarding. There's nothing Mm -hmm. suckier than showing up and having to manage yourself tightly or having to put on airs or to build up walls, it's exhausting and it's just not a way to live. It's not actually like somatically healthy for you. It's bad for your body, it's bad for your mind. So to me, I've just taken this path of like, I would rather say what I need to say, knowing that I know what it is that I can contribute to legitimately and to say it with confidence and to feel valued for it. That to me is success. The other thing that gives me a feeling of success and how it's redefined over time is as you get more senior, is how much are you helping people? How much joy do you give to people who work for you? How much do they appreciate the the level of effort that you make in mentoring them and in helping them grow or to think differently or to provide actual skills that they didn't have before? Mm-hmm. Creating a culture and a team where people are kind of pretty happy to go to work versus some sharp elbowed, you know, terrible culture. That gives me a sense of joy and pride that I didn't realize before and I just really love it. Mm-hmm. And so it's all these soft qualities and maybe it's just cause I'm getting older and I don't know what happened to me in particular during COVID, but like physical things, buying stuff, amassing more stuff, just does not it just doesn't feed me. Mm. And it's the personal relationships and the authentic relationships and the joy that you're able to give and the wisdom and creating just an environment where people get to be themselves and contribute and feel valued. Mm-hmm. I don't
0: know what else you want, you know? Yeah. I feel like there's this push and pull with yourself about corporate and about working. Mm-hmm. And just from my perspective, I've only really chatted with you for an hour and a half, but I could mm-hmm. imagine that you make work really exciting. And uh, I, I know what it's like to work with people and leaders that mm-hmm. fucking love their job. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know I guess like I kind of I want other people to hear that I don't think that that's always a bad thing. Well,
1: you know it's really funny. So I I like I know that I'm like the entertaining one in my family and um my sister reminded me recently of a card that my son had written to me for like Mother's Day or my birthday so like you know mommy thank you for this and for that and for feeding me and for you know, helping me with this and that and for entertaining me. <laughs> I just remember being like, oh my God, do I entertain you? <laughs> and so um, it made me laugh, but it also felt very honest and true because like, I really do love that. I I just want to make people feel comfortable and have joy and be themselves. And I do like to entertain um, people and not just from a, you know, jazz hands kind of broadway entertainment type of thing but i hope to bring that not just in the home but you know to work and to all of my friendships as well
0: ah lisa you're so great i love talking to you (laughs) thank you it was so nice talking to you we really went everywhere too
1: (laughs) man we were all over the map all over but that's life man it's messy and there's no perfectly straight line i definitely did not follow a straight line and if you don't, you can't self-flagellate. Sometimes it's yeah. just getting better at learning how to read yourself so that you can kind of figure out how to map your you know, way forward and to just be open to new
0: experiences.
1: Mm.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on this show. I really appreciate everything, all the straightforwardness, all the candidness. Um, it's really great. It was really refreshing. And also thank you for making me feel so comfortable so I could yeah. be my
1: authentic self.
0: Yeah, girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good-ass interview. I feel like I just got a chiropractic realignment. Thank you again, Lisa. And if you're feeling inspired to take some action, head over to countdown.ted.com and get involved in their climate change initiative. And while you're in action mode, the best way you can Girl Girlboss Radio is by hit, hit, hit. Hitting that subscribe button. Hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. Get it, get it, get it, get it. Ow, ow. Mmm, subscribe there, yeah. Boom, boom. Bow, 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 bow. Bow, 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 bow. Bow. Bow, 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 bow. Yeah, and also, if you'd like to, we would love to hear your review because we want to know what resonates with y'all on the show. So let us know what you learned from Lisa and also who else you'd like to hear from in the future. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio. If you're looking for design or production, check us out. And if you're a creative slashy looking to stack your digital skills, use the code girlboss for 10% off at ilovecreatives.com. Original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Juliana Clark, Imani Leonard, Christopher Olin, and Courtney Kosak. Engineering was done by Michael Castaneda. Our editorial director is Clemence. Special thanks to Nora Agency and Kaylee. Until next week, Kuno out.